Hello and welcome to our second episode of the 1001 Arabian Nights podcast. I'm your host, Houston Rafai. And I'm your host, Obana Rekabi. Alright, so this episode, what we're going to present is not necessarily like Arab history, but it is Middle Eastern history and it helps set the stage for the wider Arab world that comes after and also many of the people who existed in there. And most people in the Arab world have their heritage at least partially come from these other groups. And it's important to set that context, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's because, you know, nothing comes out of the blue, right? And everything leads... Exactly. One, one leads to another. And so we're trying to set up a little bit the setting of the Middle East so you know where did the Arab... Not where did they come from, but... Like, what is their influence and what, exactly. what, what were they bumping up against? Exactly. Just uh, setting or the interacting stage up with, for, rather. Exactly. Yeah. Just basically setting the stage up for the Middle East for when the Arabs actually do show up for the first time in recorded history. Exactly. And uh, that's kind of like where we want to end this episode off is where in recorded history, not just in uh, legend and mythology, do the Arabs actually show up? When can we say this is an Arab, this is who they are, this is the first named Arab in, Amer- in, uh, in the Middle East history? And yeah. We can actually do that, luckily enough, and it's a great story too. For sure, especially given like uh, if you guys have been listening to our previous episode, their origins are very, very obscure, mm. and it's very, very hard to tell. Okay, where do they come from? But at least what we can do now is, but we is just look at what where other people were doing, what other peoples were coming from, and lead up all the way up to when they were first mentioned. Exactly. You can't explain, for example, English history or the English people without first talking about the Celts or the Romans and the Britons and the French and the Germans. All of these people come together to make what is English. And you can't really separate that. No, for sure. I mean, they, they've all had an influence, right? I mean, they all played a major role in, in, in the region, whether it be for, for the English or whether it be uh, the Assyrians and the, Ak- and the Akkadians. For the Middle East. Exactly. So in this episode, I'm going to try to give a brief, as much as I can, account of the history. And we're going to go way back. So we're going to start with some geological history, which is more interesting than it sounds. I swear to God. I swear. I swear. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I'm going to start off by giving you guys a quick uh, rundown of the different concepts that we have. Uh, to deal with like uh, everybody knows about the stone you know about the stone age the iron age the bronze age yeah alright so like I'm gonna give you some like the scientific versions of that and bear in mind this is more of a a stage of development than an uh, exact dating year like different people went through different stages at different times some before even in the Middle East that happened like iron making began first in India okay than it did in the Middle East but this you usually find that find out about it in retrospect, no? Yes, yeah, you, you do. But like, it's better to explain like what we mean when we use these terms. So, yeah. there's a term called Paleolithic, which just means old Stone Age, and that is essentially all of human history before the bro- uh, sorry, uh, the Stone Age encompasses all of human history and prehistory and before humans, all the way up until the Bronze Age or the Copper Age, and I'm gonna explain that a little and, bit. And when could you give us like a time? A time? Or? All right, I'll try to break this down. I'm going to look at my notes real quick for this. Um, so 100,000 years ago is generally speaking when we agree that humans left Africa, which is one period of history. 
and that's when they left into the Middle East. Okay. So 100,000 years. And this period is known as the Paleolithic or the Old Stone Age. Think hunter-gatherers, big game kind of thing. So like the way that people lived would be to hunt larger game, at least in these new territories where a lots of game existed. Whenever humans enter a new territory, there's actually quite a lot of animals to feed off of. So it would actually have been a more meat-based diet than what we're even used to. That's an example. Like this is a general rule. Like bear in mind. Um, oh, it sounds a lot like the, uh, well, like the paleo diet, right? Heavy I, meat, heavy meat, heavy fat. And bear in mind, it's not necessarily all meat either. It's going to also involve a lot of fish. Yeah, fish well, is probably a bigger part of a human diet for a long time. Well, it's high protein, high fat kind yeah. of thing. But anyways, that's just okay. a, pa- a whole other thing. <laughs> The uh, Mesolithic, or Middle Stone Age, would be defined by something we'd be more familiar with of hunter-gathering. So a bigger portion, like the big game is mostly hunted out, or now they're too scared of humans to get close, or something like that. Uh, And the climatic changes change how people have to interact with their environment. And human populations have grown to the point where you can't just... Uh, hunt large game or stuff like that. This is like the basic theory, and, and we might not be getting it right. And when was this exactly? Uh, the Mesolithic would start. Uh, I think it would start from about 10,000 BCE to 8,000 BCE in the Middle East, but it would continue on in other areas. Like there's people in the world who are still hunter gatherers. So the Mesolithic is sort of like a middle point, obviously because it's called the Metal Stone Age, but it's like yeah. a middle point between. What we imagine old, ancient humans would exist as, and what it, we ima- what we understand to be agriculture. It's kind of like the transition point, if you are exactly. And it also involves a little bit of uh, horticulture, which is when you don't necessarily plant the food, but you sort of allow it to grow, and you have your patches and stuff. Okay. It's like semi-nomadic kind of gardening, if you will. All right. Yeah, and that would be also defined by what the Mesolithic era is. Uh, and finally, we get to the Neolithic era, the New Stone Age. And that's just defined by agriculture. All of agriculture before the use of metal is Neolithic. That's the idea. So we're basing it off of physical remains, and this is an archaeological concept. The physical remains of people. Um, I hope I explained that in the best way possible. Uh, Anyways, in the Middle East specifically, the Neolithic culture would have been the Natufian culture. Uh, the Mesolithic slash Neolithic era would have been the Natufian culture. And these are a... You were mentioning that you, you understood them to be like Afro-Asiatic, right? Yeah. The Natufians, they um, they spoke an Afro-Asiatic language, Proto-Afro-Asiatic. So Proto means... Proto basically means like the, the first, right? Or right. The first Afro-Asiatic language. Nobody really knows exactly what that language is, but they deem it to be Afro-Asiatic. So... There's like a concept that they are kind of like the Semitic ancestors, or like they their their branch is what became the Semitic languages. Yeah, I mean they've done a little bit of uh, genetic research on these people, and it turns out that their gene pool does come from the Horn of Africa, on the female side. On on, on the male side. On the male side. On the male side, their their um, their gene pool does come from the the Horn of Africa. Okay. So that would indicate uh, migration from Africa to the Middle East. Right. right, and that's where these people develop. And interestingly enough, oh. Um, oh, so it's the Semitic people who come later that have a male side that is Eurasian. Exactly, because like uh, if you guys were listening to the to the old uh, to, to the previous episode, I was trying to talk about the um, 
the genetics of the Arab people. And a lot of, uh, and most Arab people, their, um, their genetics is, is the haplogroup J1. Mm-hmm. And J1 is Eurasian, right? And also most Semitic people actually are J1. And so, even, so that would include even people who speak Hebrew, right? The Jews, the Arabs, and even the, the Semitic people of Ethiopia, they're J1. And J1 is Eurasian. Right. And so the Natufians are E1B1, which is from the Horn of Africa. So what that would mean is that either J1, these Eurasian populations, they came in. Yeah. Either they adopted the Semitic languages that were present in the Middle East, or they developed it. Developed it by adopting the Afroasiatic languages and then developing the uh, the in- Semitic languages on their own. Interesting, interesting. Because uh, just to give an idea, Natufian culture has been discovered in essentially what is known as the Levantine English or Greater Syria. It's this uh, the southern portion of the Fertile Crescent. These are the countries of modern Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Yeah. And these uh, are also the homeland of the Semitic people. So that's why we're sort of, even though there's a big uh, time period between these two eras, there's not a lot of evidence for a lot of change. So that's why we're kind of interested in seeing how that relates to each other. Because it's very, because it's really interesting to note because, you know, the Semitic languages are Afro-Asiatic languages. So you would assume that people who speak uh, Semitic languages would be Afro-Asiatic in, in origin, but it turns out that they're Eurasian. Um. So either these Eurasian people adopted it and then propagated it, right, the Semitic languages, or they adopted Afro-Asiatic languages and then developed the Semitic languages. And that's kind of interesting to note because it's when, it, mm. when you want to... De- uh, describe people's origins and different groups it, it it gets a bit confusing right right and we're dealing with the, the stone age part of history and we don't want to focus too too much on it no, because no. we have a lot of time to, to get through but like but it's just I, a brief thing right? i just wanted to mention like two things for example like human migration out of africa was between ethiopia and yemen and followed this coastline all the way up through southern arabia and southern iran into india and now east into australia because people showed up in australia before they showed up in europe and why is that why do you think that is i would say well i think the answer is what you said it's in the coastline no it's not just the coastline though it is two reasons uh partly climatic yeah and related to that is like humans can adapt pretty quickly so yeah. it shouldn't have been too long before them them moving that way. Is but it? They were. Is it because of the Neanderthals? It's because of the Neanderthals. Uh. Current evidence suggests that humans have been at war essentially with the Neanderthals for space for like a hundred thousand years. That's and crazy. Neanderthals man. existed in the Middle East, not in the desert part of the Middle East, but the northern part, which was much much colder at that period because it's the Ice Age as well. Okay. Um, and they existed throughout Europe and Russia and the rest of it. So humans essentially were bumping up against peoples who lived in the hinterlands and they followed the coast east over time pushing their way north. So like that's one of the reasons why you find Australians, native Australians, aboriginals, they have been there for like 
between 50,000 and 70,000 years. I mean, they're some of the most ancient people in the world. Exactly, and they had like their own forms of agriculture and stuff. But regardless of that, we yeah. don't want to get too deep into something that doesn't actually relate to the Earth. It's interesting. Ow. But it's, it's interesting. interesting. If you guys want to look up, just look up uh, wars between the Neanderthals and the, and the Homo sapiens. It's really cool, man. Or look up the first human migrations because that's actually super... Like Even like the genetic... I know the genetic stuff is kind of awkward because of how... It's been like this sort of pseudoscience for most of the 20th century, but yeah. like when you actually get into it, like since the since the human genome has decoded, we're finding a lot of really interesting evidence of how humans moved around for that much time. Like, it's the, it's some of the only evidence we have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just so, look at European genomes. They have what like point like three three percent Neanderthal or something. Yeah, between 0.5 and three percent Neanderthal, which is weird. Uh, and it's kind of an awkward thing while, to think about. <laughs> while Africans have 0% Neanderthal in them. Exactly. Which, you know, I wouldn't be mad about. <laughs> but um, let's, uh, let's get back to the Natufians. So the Natufians are an Afro-Asiatic people who probably were mixed in with another people eventually because of the genetic evidence. But At some point, but that's probably some... thousands of years later. Exactly. But what's important about the Natufians is they're the transition period. They're part of the Mesolithic era. And they are the people who we believe have de were developed, uh, who developed the first agriculture. So what they grew, what they didn't really grow it. They just gathered the cereals that we're familiar with, the wild cereals. And over time sort of changed them. But what really kicked off their change was the climatic change that happened around this era. When the end of the Ice Age happened... Um, the climate shifted, and the warming climate forced the Natufians to start clearing shrubs which began growing in their, in their patches, their traditional patches. And they had to start growing cereals themselves, because they were already a densely populated people, and they were already at least partially sedentary. Okay. And when they're partially sedentary, that means that their food source is so reliable that they stick around. Like, this doesn't have to happen with plant-based agriculture either. Um, the Pacific Northwest, for example... Uh, what we know as the Pacific Northwest in Canada and the U.S., they were mostly sedentary. Like, you go to their place, they, they have sedentary camps, well, and they move around a bit, but they, they go between two places a year. But then eventually this develops into cities or civilizations. Exactly, but what were the Northwesterners eating? What was their staple? <laughs> Probably uh, corn or... Nope, no? salmon. Salmon, Because really? the rivers are so reliable... The, the supply of salmon is so reliable that they can actually sit down like and actually densely uh, inhabit a place. It's really interesting. Wow. Okay. Anyways, we don't want to get too, too deep into all that stuff. So where we go from here is obviously the development of bronze. There's a middle period where there's the development of copper, which is called the Chacolic... Chacolithic age. I don't know how to pronounce that, to be honest. Uh, and then you get to the Bronze Age civilizations, right? So that's the basic chronology of... And then eventually you get to the Iron Age. So this is the basic chronology of how we divide up this period of human history. Uh, up until we get to, like, the Roman and the Classical period in which we stop using, you know, archaeological evidence and we just start using what people wrote down, you know? Primary sources. Exactly. Well, because before this, we don't have primary sources that are at least reliable. Like, we do have writing, but it's not as reliable as the histories that come later. Or supposedly reliable. I mean, it's, 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 not, like, it's not like anybody was writing down anything anyways at that point. Right. 
And the Iron Age obviously started off in India first, which is an important point because that changes everything in the Middle East at once. And I'll get into that whole thing later. Regardless, what we're really getting around is the geology that shifted 10,000 years ago shaped the Middle East in ways that um, have actually remained with us in more present ways than people realize. Our legends are partially based on what happened back then. And okay. there was two periods to think about. There's the 10,000 to 12,000 years ago warming period. <coughs> and then there's the sea level rise that happened um, seven, 6,000 years ago, if you will. All right. This is all right. kind of related to the, to six the thousand, ice age. Exactly. 6,000, uh, sorry, uh, not 7,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago. Okay. So uh, 6,000 uh, BCE. Um, and bear in mind, the world looked radically different at this time. You had North Africa was actually a giant savanna. Yeah, it was it was green at that point. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It wasn't these sand dunes that we think of it today. It was filled with lakes and rivers and lots and lots of very big wild animals that we understand them to be African animals. And additionally, the Middle East was much, much wetter during this period. You know... Given that it, it used to be much, much greener, I think archaeologists right now should go try to find out what's going on in these and try to find any any evidence of civilization in 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 the they, sands of uh, in, of the Sahara Desert. No, they have evidence, and it's uh, it's very likely that because you never know what you're gonna find. But no, but it's very likely that cattle herding began there because we are part of the evidence is actually um, cave paintings. Okay. Cave paintings in these areas of the, of the Sahara. And obviously this is a huge area and it's not been well enough ex excavated. Like one of the reasons why we have such good uh, evidence for the Natufians, especially in the southern Levant, is actually because of the modern state of Israel and its very well-funded archaeological excavations. Okay. Like well-funded archaeological excavations give us more information. For and sure, conflicts yeah. give us less. Let's put it that way. It's the reason why Yemen, there's not... It would be an amazing place to go dig. Exactly, but there's not much There's not much study on it just because of the conflicts over there, right? Right. And uh, so when, we, when I bring up the Africans, for example, or the African uh, humid period, as it's called, uh, I'm bringing it up to, to explain to people that the ecological environment changes drastically. And part of what happened to Egypt was as this beautiful like savanna contracted it forced people into smaller and smaller spaces that's why that's probably the best evidence for agriculture and human civilization is the rise in populations forces people to exploit the resources that they have available more you know uh so these immense great savannas gave way to desert which forced people into what became the egyptian oasis if we will and a similar process likely happened in the Middle East. But it didn't just happen because desertification. It also happened because of an event that, interestingly enough, relates to where we are now. Which is, uh, uh, what I mean by that is our hosts, me and Oban, are now in Canada. So, over Canada, during the Ice Age, there was this massive ice sheet that covered the entire country. Okay. The entire country. The southernmost point of this ice sheet reached all the way to Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay, the so... easternmost point went over the ocean into Newfoundland. 
So and Montreal the, would have been completely under ice right now. Exactly. And it's what carved out the environment that we lived in, live in now. And keep in mind, this is human history. There's humans that you could probably have had a conversation, definitely would have been able to have a conversation with if you learned their language. Yeah, yeah. Living at this time. It wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. Uh, and there's some debate as to whether or not there were humans in North America at this time specifically, like uh, during the Ice Age. Some people think that it was like 30,000 years ago that people showed up in the Americas. Other people think it was about 12,000. It's contested. It's contested. It is contested. But regardless, this is known as the Laurentide Ice Sheet, which is named after the Laurentians, which is named after the St. Lawrence, and this is the environment that Canada lives in. Our northern territory is carved out of this ice sheet. The rocky um, lake-strewn landscape that exists in the north is a product of having been scraped out by a retreating ice sheet. And it kept retreating north as like the, as the climate warmed. And the reason why the climate warmed has a lot to do with like the Earth, Earth's tilt and the reflective surface of the, of the Earth, but we're not going to get into the science there. No. <laughs> uh, It'll be a bit too long. Oh, this is going to be a really long podcast if I get into the science. But regardless, uh, the Laurentide Ice Sheet began retracting about 18,000 years ago. 16,000 BC and it kept retreating, retreating, retreating up into the point where it was all the way into what is now the high the high Arctic as we call it, the Arctic Ring but it still blocked the water from melting into the ocean. So these massive, bigger than the ones we have today like there's already massive lakes there but these were connected and they were much, much bigger back then. Lake Winnipeg used to be connected to all the different lakes around it, and it was much deeper and much bigger, and it was called Lake Agassiz, Agassiz, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, A-G-A-S-S-I-Z, so that lake, yeah, which I don't know why anyone named it that, was huge, and it was like this reservoir being held up by this ice sheet, and what eventually happened was this ice sheet either slowly or quickly, we don't know, and that's, that's again contentious, broke open and let out a massive amount of water into the world ocean and raised the sea level of the world in about 500 years, uh, in a period of 500 years, we're not sure how quickly it happened, Yeah. by like 100 meters, 120 meters. And this is, this is a worldwide event? This is a worldwide event. It flooded most of the Southeast Asian like area that is now like separate islands those were connected back then it flooded the bering ice strait they flooded a bunch of areas of the world it you know it reminds me of um well it reminds me of the legends of going on in, in india and sri lanka at some point like i, I remember reading this somewhere um how i think they the people living there used used to believe that there was a bridge that was linking or land linking oh, but India and Sri Lanka. That's actually a different thing. That that's, happened much, much later. It happened in recorded history. Okay, okay, okay. That, that I know what you're talking about. Actually, to this day, there's actually not that much separating this like land bridge that exists that existed between Sri Lanka and India. It was probably a much bigger back then, obviously. Okay. But the land bridge maintained itself into the classical period. There's people who talked about how like some people would like go up to it. Put their stuff across it and then move. Okay, so that was way that, that was way after that then. Exactly. So like right. even to this day, like we know of 
shifts in the world's like these are small events compared to what happened with the Laurentide ice sheet breaking. Yeah. I mean, so it's a worldwide event on this one. Exactly, it was a worldwide event, and it contributed to two events that are very relevant to the Middle East, for example, because um, so there's two different theories that I want to talk about. One is something that's pretty well attested to and very like. But it, it, there's always controversy. There's always people who say, like, oh, it happened slower. Oh, it happened faster. They, they don't dispute whether or not it happened. They're just disputing how dramatic it was. Okay. So something called the Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. It was proposed in 1997 by William Ryan, Walter Pittman, and a bunch of other people. And uh, they argued that this global sea level rise put the Mediterranean up against this land bridge that we know of it today uh, as what is essentially the city of Istanbul. So what exists, like the Bosphorus Straits, or the Bosphorus Straits, yeah, or the Dardanelles, there's a bunch of names for it, but essentially it is the waterways that connect the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea and the, to the rivers that connect Russia. So it's one of the most important waterways in the world. And then its narrowest points uh, is the city of Istanbul, the city of Constantinople. There's like this this very small, very like deep channel that okay. separates these two mountainous sides of Asia and Europe. And that's where the city is, and it can command this, this little territory. All right. But that used to be all land. Okay, okay. And so what eventually happened was once the sea levels rose to a certain height, it... The theory goes that they slowly broke away at this land bridge. And at one point, it crested over the, this land bridge, the sill, as the term goes. The water kept rising until it eroded the sill, the top of this barrier, and started going over. And when it starts going over, it starts eroding it, and more and more water can get across. That's essentially what creates a waterfall. Except this waterfall... Um, to give you an example, Niagara Falls is one of the biggest waterfalls in the world. It's this yeah. enormous thing. Beautiful, um, by the way. It's gorgeous. You should go visit. Yeah, after after you know the after plague after is listening over. to this podcast, after listening to this po podcast, and after the plague is over, because we're recording in twenty twenty, where nothing makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. But like like just to to give you an example, this would have been a hundred times more water a day. A hundred times more water a day than, than the Niagara, Niagara Falls. Falls. Exactly. Okay, so, so that must have been a really dramatic event. Exactly. And it filled an area that is now, we call it the Black Sea. Back then it would have been a freshwater lake where all of the water coming out of Russia or the western parts of Russia and Ukraine flowed into. And it would have been about a hundred meters lower than the sea level. That's in that, at that time. At that time. Okay. So when this happened, it started sending seawater into this freshwater lake. And it started raising the the, uh, the level of the water and okay. flooding a massive ring of land, which at this point was settled with agricultural people. And how dramatic would you say this was? A hundred times? I mean, because a hundred times... That's the, uh, that's the dramatic example. That's the theory okay. that they give. There's other competing theories that said it happened slower. Like it would have okay. been more comparable to uh, waterfalls that we know of today. All right. But given that it happened so quickly... It probably was as dramatic as as uh, as these researchers claim. Okay. And this kept this this event would have definitely impressed 
a lot of people when it happened. Because and people it, were living there. And it would have felt like the world had been flooded. Because the area that we're talking about here is an area the size of, let's say, uh, England. All or right. the Great, Great Britain. It's a huge area of settled people that was flooded completely. Wow. And what's even more interesting is that... Uh, and I, I already hear like a bunch of people saying, Oh, this sounds like Noah's Ark. Oh, this sounds like Noah's Ark. Well, Noah's Ark, by, led, by reputation, was supposedly landed on Mount Ararat, which was one of the tallest mountains in the Middle East. And it's, uh, it's in Turkey today. It looks across from Armenia. Yeah. It's in the Armenian highlands. Kind of... And, and it's close to where this happened. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Like, it kind of sounds a little bit like that. And, you know, going back to what I was talking about, about um, the, the displacement of Eurasian people coming into the Middle East, oddly enough, that happened about 8,000 years ago. Yeah. Right? And so it's possible that these are the people... That probably came to the Middle East. I mean, this is my own speculation. Here. It's not it's a not bad a... speculation because, like, again, um, because it's really, uh, it's hard to get enough evidence about it, this stuff. It is. It is like this. By the way, folks, this is just my own little speculation here. Exactly. We are not researchers. We are not academics. We are exactly people who are reading researchers and academics trying to learn about the world. Yeah, but like I said, like I think this is. Because you know, um, those, that Eurasian migration did happen about eight thousand years ago, and so it's possible that those were the people that were living there, and then that area flooded. I can't say no. That, I don't know that because would, that would be very interesting, though. Uh, like, another interesting thing is also um, the Noah's Noah's Ark story is yeah. typically Middle Eastern. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's also where I kind of this this is where my speculation kind of lies, like exactly. the fact that it's a Middle Eastern story, and these people came to the Middle East probably already having that story with them. Yeah, I I. But agree. then again, but I don't know. there's also a more local event that's but, worth talking about, okay, as well, and that is something called the Gulf Oasis theory. Now, this was proposed by a guy named Jeffrey Rose, who's kind of a uh, I, I checked out his pictures. He's kind of an Indiana Jones wannabe kind of character. He's a university professor at Bir uh, Birmingham University in England. And uh, he's a researcher on ancient, um, I guess you could say, Mesopotamian civilizations. He had a theory uh, based on what happened with the Laurentide event uh, that because of this, it's very obvious that the Gulf, the Khalij, the, yeah. the Arabo-Persian Gulf as this... Uh, this researcher decided to call it because he can't decide between who's right on the on the naming convention. Yeah, is it going to be the Arabian Gulf? Is it going to be the Persian Gulf? If anybody knows about this, this is a funny, like, stupid argument that's being had. It's a, it's a tit for tat kind of thing. Yeah, the the Persians and the rest of the world call, or the Iranians and the rest of the world call it the Persian Gulf, and the Arabs call it the Arab Gulf. Yeah, it's just it's just what it is. But regardless, he says that this area. Uh, and actually, he's correct in this in this part of the theory that this area was land, straight up land. The whole Gulf. The whole Gulf was land, right up into the Strait of Hormuz, which is like an area the size of Great Britain. Again, to give you an approximate size. And really, so people people were living there. Exactly, and this is actually the pathway through which the first humans came out of Africa. Okay. So this would have been one of the very first settled areas of the world outside of Africa. Other than Yemen and Oman. 
I mean, it would explain how people got to India so easily. Exactly, because otherwise you would have either had to take a boat or had to go around the whole area that is yeah. now flooded. But regardless, what really is interesting about his version of the theory is that this was uh, a sort of Garden of Eden kind of... Like, he's describing it as sort of a Garden of Eden, Egypt kind of situation. This land would have been where not just the Tigris and Euphrates, but the other waterways of the Middle East would have drained into. And it was a low-lying area, so the water would have stayed there into this large very fertile, very well-watered territory. And that's what the Gulf Oasis theory uh, posits. Um, and what he suggests, and this is the most no novel part of his, uh, of his theory, is that humans would have settled this place early and would have settled this place densely. And this would have been a very well-settled region of the world. That landmass in the Gulf. And that landmass in the Gulf. Okay, that would, is now the Gulf. That is now the Gulf would have been uh, a place where the uh, sort of similar to the Natufians where people would have settled and become sedentary early in okay. our history and the population would have been very large compared to the surrounding regions and it would have had strong connections with the rest of the regions. All right. And this is very interesting because it kind of fits into what we know of what the uh, the Sumerians talked about their own history. So the area would have been, uh, I, as I said, it would have been uh, fed by the Tigris River, the Euphrates River, the Karun River, and the Wadi Batin, along with some smaller rivers out of Iran, and the aquifers, or these, uh, this underwater uh, resource that exists underneath the Arabian um, Peninsula, that okay. currently feeds the oases in the east of the um, Arabian, uh, like Bahrain, yeah. and um, eastern Saudi, and... Uh, a bunch of other countries derive their water from these aquifers that continue to exist. They would have been more full back then and they would have flowed all the way into this Gulf region. Interesting. So all of that water would have pooled in that area. And what is very interesting about this theory, and it ties in with other, what other people have said, is this may be the origin point of what we understand to be the, the first civilizations. That being Sumer. Everybody knows about the Sumerian yeah. civilization. Yeah. And this coincides really well. The flooding of this territory coincides really well with what we call the Ubayid period. Okay. And th that is the period where there was just this very, very rapid settling of the lower Mesopotamian area, the delta, that existed there, where the cities would eventually develop. And the cities developed very quickly, too. So, mm, so that kind of shows, like, previous knowledge experience on like civilization building no? exactly there may have been because the population kept having to be pushed out of their previous territory okay they would have had to um, live in the dense area that remained of the territory okay if you will and that would have forced them to develop it well and develop uh, develop their agriculture as best they could in so, an area that was more hostile than their home. So if I if I understand this correctly, you have there used to be land on where the the Arabian or Persian Gulf is today, but then at some point water kept crept creeping in, mm -hmm. and then slowly taking over the place, pushing these people out into what is now southern Mesopotamia. Is exactly. That, is that what you're trying to say? And actually, it pushed them even further out because um, at this point the shoreline. 
6,000, or sorry, 6,000 BC, or yeah. no, 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC, would have been well, like 100 kilometers into Iraq. Basra would be underwater. Really? Yes. Mind you guys, Basra is a, it's, it's a city of about a million people right now two, today. Two million people, something like that. And so that would have been completely underwater. Exactly. And the, the shoreline would have been all the way up to the cities of Ur, Uruk, and the rest of them that eventually developed. So central South Iraq. Exactly. And that's why those cities exist there, where like now it's completely arid where they are. The rivers yeah. would have flown right next to them, and the shoreline was right next to them, so they can continue trading. And that's where... Yo, that's crazy, man. Yeah, I know. It's, it is crazy. Like to, to, to think that people used to live there and now it's completely water. That's one reason why you, should, why you guys should take climate change seriously, eh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, you have to, man. It's a pressing issue. Exactly. And on that note, we're going to take a little bit of a break and uh, say that this is enough for the geology portion of our, yeah. of our explanation of the origins of the Middle East. But... I want to leave it off on this note that the both the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian creation myth, and the Book of Genesis traditions both cite massive floods and these sort of migrations from the past. Just one quick question though. Um, the one the flood that you're talking about in the Gulf of Oasis or the, the, the Arabian Gulf, yeah. Persian Gulf. How long uh, how long did that take compared to the one in the in the Black Sea that you were talking about? Slower. I think uh, if I remember correctly it was a couple hundred years, but that's very quick by 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 relative standards because it would have uh, over time uh, sort of eroded the land and continued to flow in. But is it noticeable by people like a Yes, uh, very noticeable. Like probably like, would the, it be as dramatic as like the other one where not as dramatic but very dramatic within your lifetime your village would have disappeared. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, a couple of hundred years sounds like, oh, okay, like, it's slow. But I guess that's not really the case then, eh? Exactly. But we're going to get into more of, like, how people remembered this Okay. Uh, in the next part of the episode. Right. For now, we're going to take a little break, grab some water, and listen to some tunes. Yeah, for sure. See you guys. Folks, after a nice hearty meal, we're back to finish uh, well the second half of the of the podcast of the episode, and you know talk a little bit about we're gonna be talking a little bit about cultural transmissions and you know all the different peoples right now because we did give you the setup prior to that. Um, it's been a lot of setup. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and but so now we're gonna give you hit you with some more setup. So there's more. I'm gonna try to really go fast with this because yeah. we could be here. For thousands of years, which is essentially the time period we're dealing with here. Exactly. We're trying to, we're, basically, if you guys don't uh, want to know, we're trying to condense, what, about like 3,000 years in, in an hour? Up to 800. 
Yeah, about 3,000, uh, 3,500 years yeah, 3, in about an hour. Years. Yeah, exactly. So we got the geo- geological no, no. part out. No, we're trying to do that in the last half hour. The exactly. first half hour included 100,000 years. Yeah, so I guess you can see we're pretty good at, at that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, yeah. we're totally concise. That's what we're doing. All right, enough of the, the so, messing around too much. So now we got the geolo- geological part out. Let's talk about the cultural impact it had the actual peoples in the middle east yay the thing Let's we're go. supposed to talk about <laughs> all right so all right, i'm gonna start just uh, saying in western civilization we're kind of taught that history begins in the middle east with the sumerians and it slowly shifts west you know first it goes to the sumerians then to the egyptians then we get to the greeks we forget about all that nonsense that was going on over there then we get to the romans and then finally we're up in you know London for some reason. And then at some point you reach America. Exactly. That's how history of Western Civ is taught. And actually that's right. what the Americans literally just call world history. But From Sumeria to America. Exactly. It's just a straight line. But really there's a lot of stuff that keeps happening over there. So um, I think the best way to try to frame this is actually through Ibn Khaldun's theory of how people move around. And Ibn Khaldun was a, um, I guess you could say medieval... Arab historian. Uh, he's often considered the father father of sociology, specifically. Um, and his theory is pretty solid. It explains how different groups come to take over territories. And like, he talks about the need for social cohesion in order to be successful and organized and able to actually conquer uh, territory that is of settled people. So nomadic people are cohesive. They're strong. They they are well organized and they're good fighters, and they manage to take over settled people who are less cohesive. They have class differences. Really, have, exactly. That's his theory, and they and they come to become the ruling class. And this I've, keeps happening every it, couple. Ge- you know, it was always my impression that the cohesive people would be the the ones, the settled people, and the nomads would be the incohesive group because they're always fighting each other. I, I guess that could between be... Between tribal warfare or whatever. I, I guess you could say that, but consider like for somebody like uh, Genghis Khan, he managed to organize those tribes, and once he created them into a cohesive whole, there's nothing that stopped them. That's exactly... You know what? It, and what beat them? Well, uh, they broke apart they into broke their... broke apart, yeah. Exactly. The dynasties. So that's, um, that's what he's ex- observing throughout history. And he saw, it actually was only 100 years before was the, uh, was the conquest of the Mongols. And I was just thinking of that too, right, actually, as I was talking. I was like, you know what, uh, there, there is parallel between the Arabs and the Mongols in this point. Like both of them were like tribal warring people just fighting each other. Exactly. And then Genghis Khan came for the, for the Mongols. Muhammad came for the Arabs, united them, and then they just boff exploded onto each the each, world stage exactly each respective scene right exactly and we're not going to focus too much on this but it's to explain that he was observing this in ancient history and yeah. he kept observe and he kept bringing it up uh specifically with this ancient history that we're going to get into one group continuously conquers another but the starting point of this group conquering group and like assimilating into their own culture becoming weak and being conquered again so this the cycle starts with Sumerians and the Sumerians are an interesting anomaly in history because they are uh, kind of an outlier they are a language isolate a cultural isolate in a wider Middle East which was partially 
<clears throat> Semitic to the west and some other peoples to the east, but there is no language that we know of that is related to Sumerian. They are unique. And they are the, the beginners of our culture in a lot of ways. They, uh, starting with the Uruk period in uh, <clears throat> about 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC was when the first true cities were built. And they were built in Sumer. And one after the other, they start being built. And they built these massive temples, the ziggurats that still stand today in, in the uh, lower Mesopotamia, in Iraq. They created what we understand to be a civilization in the modern sense. Now, this is a very, you know, one way of looking at the world kind of way. But still, yeah. they are the ones who started with the class stratification, with... Uh, different jobs with land management with uh, hydraulic engineering all of that and the large building projects taxes all of that mm. began with the sumerians so blame the sumerians for your taxes folks uh, you, you can say that i guess <laughs> and they also were the first people uh in the ubayid period the pe period preceding the cities okay which is also the sumerians and when they were developing between when they arrived in this area that they call, and I say arrived for another reason that I'll get to, but they arrived in Lower Mesopotamia, and the first cities, they were the ones who started to develop copper, okay, and started the Copper Age, which eventually would become the Bronze Age, like a thousand years later, but, uh, and bronze is just uh, a alloy of nine parts copper and one part tin, and tin is very, very rare. The reason why we started off using copper, even though that is quite rare, is because it's, it, it's uh, malleable at a much lower heat point than iron is. Iron is a better metal, but it requires ridiculously high heats in order, in a, and it's very difficult for ancient people to create this kind of heat. So it re required way more effort to actually make iron than copper, even though copper is more rare. But regardless, I'm going on a tangent. Uh, the Sumerians were sort of uh, organized in... Uh, under a class of priests, and these were like bald-headed people wearing like long skirts and stuff. Very interesting-looking people, mm. who uh, who kind of ran the society. And over time, they would eventually be pushed out by military figures. But at the beginning, they were the rulers, the mm. priests. Was it kind of like a religious society? It, every society is a religious society, but, but in the in the sense of like you know, kind of theocratic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the important point to take away is they're the ones who recorded things and eventually started to write down stuff. Yeah. Um, over time, obviously. And this is uh, one of the things that happened in the Uruk period with cities, was they started the system of writing that we know of today, this cuneiform, these wedges and these dashes that created the, that was used for another 3,000 years. Uh, <clears throat> anyways, they were the ones who recorded where they came from and according to Sumerian accounts they're not indigenous to that area they come from a land under the sea or across like not across the sea they come from the sea that's what they're saying so the sea was the gulf to them okay. they t they're literally telling us in their own accounts and in their creation myth, myth which I'll get to, yeah. that they came from the sea, like I explained. So, so that ties back to the to the to the uh, the theory of uh, the Gulf of Oasis that you're talking about earlier, where the Gulf, where there used to be land in that area, and then yeah. okay, and that is exactly what I'm saying. They're saying to us that they came from that sea. And Interesting. 
what's important about that is uh, well, what's interesting is that it goes up into this legend they call the legend of Dilmun, um, and it's related to a pl an actual place, much like how Mount Olympus is an actual place in Greece. This is an actual place, and what is essentially what is left of this oasis. Or the two parts that are left of the oasis are where they ended up. The Sumerians ended up in Lower Iraq, and the much, much more fertile at that time oases along the southern part of the Gulf in what is now Bahrain and Qatar and, and eastern Oman? Saudi Arabia. What about Oman? Oman uh, was a little bit of a different thing. Okay. And it didn't have as much water. But the important part is that land continued to be called Dilmun, and they continued to have exchanges with them. And this yeah. is like the ancient, uh, the ancient legacy of the uh, Bahrainis and the Eastern Arabs. This is their culture, and there was always that connection. And you can tell me, like you, you tell me all the time that there's this really strong connection between, like the Khalij and, and yeah. Iraq. Well, because where we're from, south southern Iraq, we have we do have a lot of cultural. Uh, yeah, we do have a lot of cultural ties to the people living in the, in, in the Gulf countries. Yeah. You know, in dialects and in food, actually, you know, mm. similar things. We've we even participated in the Gulf Cup. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how For you anybody know. watching soccer. It's uh, that's just how you know, right? It's like, oh, do they play soccer together? That that's that's yeah. the, that's the clincher. That's that's what it there is. There you go. The fo football, as I should say, because international audience. But but needless to say, we do have the, there. There is a strong uh, cultural connection. Right. To this day, between the southern part of Mesopotamia and um, the Gulf countries. And interestingly, and this ties back to the ironworking thing that I mentioned earlier, there's always that connection with India too. So this was the first like sea trading route in the world, was the Gulf. Okay. And it facilitated trade between Sumer and Dilmun and the Indian civilization. So all of them traded with each other. And so wait, we have a strong against Sumer, Dilmun, and the uh... Indus Valley civilization, okay. as we call it. And this is like the civilization which would later morph into. And Dilmun would be the um, the Gulf countries, right? Or like right. Bahrain mostly. Exactly. And these places became legendary to to the Sumerians and like a like Garden of Eden type place. And I'll explain later, but. This was an actual place. They had commerce with them. There were people who went back and forth all the time. So it's interesting that they viewed themselves as connected to this place and viewed it in a sort of legendary, par paradisical, uh, like, view. Because it must have been far away anyways. It was far for an ancient person, but not necessarily far for a... Uh, a modern person to travel yeah. but like obviously they could travel much slower and yeah. it's much more dangerous to travel at the time but there were those links and there was the sea trading route between them and India okay what we now call India and uh, we have really strong evidence of that they were moving around big big bulky goods not just trade goods but big big they were moving wheat around all right when you're moving wood or wheat around your basic living like living supplies that really does uh, tell you how much like connection you have. Um, regardless, uh, I wanted to read a small passage from the uh, Babylonian uh, uh, Enuma Elish, and it's a specifically an account that is from an older account uh, of the um, Sumerian creationists. The promise of Enki, the lord of sweet waters, to Ninhursung, the earth mother, 
from the Sumerian creation myth Enki and Ninhursung. I hope I pronounced that right. Anyways, <laughs> probably not. But nah, probably not. Uh, nobody but, knows. Exactly. But it goes, For Dilmun, the land of my lady's heart, I will create long waterways, rivers and canals, whereby water will flow to quench the thirst of all beings and bring abundance to all that lives. And this is interesting because these waterways are what created these civilizations and the the exploited civilizations around iran is built with these like man-made waterways that fertilize their fields between the mountains yeah. uh, bahrain and the saudi arabia's east coast to this day continue to use these underground aquifers and you have to use them in order to create a fertile place yeah or oasis and organize in order to become self-sufficient and create the, the surplus and the same even though it was a very fertile territory the same principle goes for Sumer that land needed to be um, you could say tamed okay. but it had to be developed in order to be profitable uh, or to, to actually produce something for the people um, and in reality what eventually happened was Dilmun became a Semitic people much like the Sumerians the Sumerians were not a Semitic people to begin with, but, but they, they became, became yeah. Semitic. And to this day, the people who live there, uh, who may have Sumerian ancestry, they, from that point on, no longer spoke their ancient language. It's one of the reasons why we don't know who spoke this language at all. And that's partly because of a group we're going to have to get into soon, the Akkadians. The Akkadians adopted Sumerian culture, but brought with them their language. So there's that kind of exchange right here. Exactly. And the exchange went both ways. Yeah. The Sumerians had to learn the Akkadian language because all the people surrounding them were Semitic. So Akkadian had to be the middle point between them. Okay. And... Um, the Akkadians borrowed Sumerian culture and traditions. Exactly. Maybe, and I think the best way to explain this is through uh, this process of mythological transmission. So like gods actually moved around back in the day. Because in polytheistic world, you can adopt a god into your theology, or okay. at least like change your theology to match your neighbor's theology. It's a weird th way, thing it, to it, think it's about. It's kind of it's kind of a way of pandering a little, not pandering, uh, but like it's like oh, who cares? it's like but, borrowing. There you go, borrowing it's, cultures. It, it's borrowing culture. So I want to talk about this goddess, uh, one of the most important goddesses to ancient Sumerian legend, called Inanna, and she was the goddess of sex, war justice and power so kind of a lot of big important categories yeah she is associated with snakes her imagery is associated with snakes and the planet venus and its transmission across this or its movement across the sky and remember okay. that those two factors because this is very interesting uh she was like for example the high priest would often have to like have sex with the priestesses of inanna for like rituals and it's a very Again, we're not going to get into it. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting stuff. Just trying uh, to keep it PG-13 here. I don't think that's <laughs> going to be that bad. But like, like, yeah, okay. Uh, so, so here's where it gets interesting, because now people are going to start picking up. Because in Akkadian, her name is Ishtar. Okay. And I think more people recognize the name Ishtar than Inanna. And it's very famous for the Gate of Ishtar, which was the Gate to Babylon, which is a gorgeous blue, massive gate that uh, welcomed people. Still standing here today, folks. Exactly. And there's a recreation in, in London if everyone, anyone wants to go see it. Very cool. Uh, 
So that goddess Ishtar later morphed into the goddess of beauty Ashtarte in the Phoenician language, in the Canaanite religion, in the Phoenician language, and as Aphrodite in Greece. Okay. And she was known as the queen of heaven in the original, and that over time became the queen of beauty as you're moving through these cultures and yeah. eventually you get to Greece where it's Aphrodite and yeah. Venus in Rome hence the planet okay so it comes full circle yeah it's 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 interesting to note that transmission of culture from from one place to the next until we get to so Again, this kind of follows that Western Civ outlined. It is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So it, it's actually a really good example. And the alphabet's also an interesting example, too, where writing begins in Sumeria, it's promulgated by Akkadians, then through the Phoenicians, it becomes an alphabet. That alphabet gets adopted by the Greeks, and the Romans create their own alphabet in relation, like in inspiration from the Greeks. Okay. And that's our alphabet. Wow. So that exact same transmission happens again in, in multiple ways. Well, I mean, it, also, it also shows kind of the movements of peoples exactly in, in the area. And uh, over time, Sumeria uh, declined as all civilizations do. Um, its, its decline was partially due to shifting rivers, stronger neighbors invading them all the time, including the Akkadians. Um, and soil degrade, degradation, so it became a salt, like the soil over time, because agriculture can do this to uh, places, it over time creates poor soil, the soil becomes salty, you can't grow the same things as you could have before, and it, it, you eventually have to, re like the population becomes smaller and smaller over time. Yeah. And the people who lived there started to become bilingual Akkadian speakers, and over time, Unilingual speakers and okay, Sumerian so died as a living. Slowly dissipates and disappears. Exactly, but it's preserved as an ancient uh, priestly language. Like the priests in Akkadian culture had to learn Sumerian. It became kind of, like Latin. Exactly, kind of like Latin in in, in the Christian world. Exactly, uh, in the Catholic world especially. Yeah. So let's like briefly talk about the Akkadians. They're a Semitic, Eastern Semitic people, speaking people, as we explained in the last episode. They, um, uh, from about 1700 BCE, they uh, preserved the Sumerian language. And over time, the Akkadians took over the entirety of what we call now Iraq. From the north and all the way to the south, Akkadian was the spoken language. But each city maintained its identity, and each region maintained its culture. But over time, one city became the most important, and that's very familiar to people today, Babylon. So late Akkadian culture is often just associated as Babylonian culture, especially in the south. Is, is it kind of like their descendants? Or? They are the descendants. Okay. And with, like... Some people migrating, but yeah. everyone adopted their language. So it developed. So Akkadian kind of devel Akkadian developed into Babylonian. Exactly, and okay. of course, people remember Sargon of Akkad, the first king, uh, the Babylonian the king, the first emperor, yeah. Hammurabi. The Kul these are the ancient people that we kind of associate with that period. But like, this is we've already covered two thousand years of history at this point. We're yeah. at like two thousand BCE, and from that point onward, 
we're getting into what we understand to be the Bronze Age. And I'm not going to explain everything, but the height of the Bronze Age was just before its complete collapse. So, first of all, I wanted to just uh, mention um, what the height of the civilization would have been. So, this was more of like a civilization system. So, you had the Hittites up in the northwest, what is now Turkey. They would have been an Indo-European people. So, they would have come from um, what is now kind of the Ukraine, Russia area, and they migrated down. They are very famous people for a number of reasons, but they were in direct conflict with the Mycenaeans, okay. who are the previous Greek civilization before the classical Greeks. Uh, they're famous for being uh, basically the Greeks of the Trojan Wars. Think of that era. All right. And you've got the new kingdom of Egypt. So to give you an idea of how much history has passed, this is the new kingdom, the young one. The old kingdom and the middle kingdom are thousands of years before. This is this is after the pyramids. Exactly. About. Way past the pyramids. Like the, yeah. the pyramids are long gone history for them. Or not long yeah. gone, but they're history. And this was where Egypt really became an empire. They had been invaded and now they were they had kicked out their invaders and they had followed them back into what is now the Levant, Syria. And they were pushing their way up north and conquering south in Nubia. So you so have the, the Egyptian Empire. So the invaded is becoming the invader. Exactly. Nice. And so that's the Egyptians, the Hittites. You have, uh, for a brief po po period of about 150 years, a people called the Mitanni, which we're not entirely sure of what their cultural background is, but they controlled the middle of Upper Mesopotamia, the Al-Jazair today. Oh, the Jazeera area? The, the Jazeera, right. Okay, that's northern... That's uh, Northern Syria and northern Iraq. Yeah, about... And yeah. what is northern Iraq today would have been conquered... Would have been uh, populated by the people known as the Assyrians, who would have been a, a subject people of the Mitanni for a while. Okay. So they also play into the civilization system. And the Assyrians were an Akkadian-speaking people, but with a, a distinct culture that we're going to get into later. They had a different focus in their gods, and they had a different focus in their culture. And then you have the Babylonian kingdom in the south of what is now Iraq. Okay. So this is sort of the civilization system, and what they this is the height of the Bronze Age. This period was characterized by like chariot warfare. So these big war chariots, like the Egyptians had their own model, the Hittites had their own model, everybody had their own version of it. The Hittites one was like a big hulking like tank-like uh, military machine. Yeah. And the Egyptian one was this la light fast like arrow pr like shooting one. So you know like tanks and uh but this is kind of like their system of knights. Like this yeah. is their military class. The grunts are like the front lines, but this is their showpieces, what wins battles. Nice, right. eh? yeah. It is. It is. It's kind of. It's kind of like tanks and uh, and Humvees. Exactly, and one of the first battles that we uh, have recorded, uh, the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE. This was a massive chariot battle where thousands of chariots clashed in what is uh, now uh, next to Homs, uh, in Syria, where the Hittites and the and the Egyptians fought each other. This would be in western Syria. Yes, yeah, central Syria. Really. Central. Okay, central Syria. Just okay. north of Lebanon. All right, and it was uh, probably something to behold, and the we know of it because of Egyptian accounts and Hittites accounts, and because of the peace agreement that happened afterwards. That's why, like the peace agreement, is one of, is the first ever peace treaty we know of. 
And it's actually up in the UN. The original is, is kept in the UN today because it is such an important part of this sort of diplomatic history. And it's important to note that they didn't just war with each other. These civilizations traded and they exchanged brides. And they would often refer to themselves as family. And if they weren't family, they made themselves family by marrying off their kids. Okay, so it's kind of like a, a political uh, marriage, if you like, right? Exactly. Like for, or marriage for political reasons. Exactly. For like alliances. Yeah. And they do that uh, to maintain peace and, more importantly, to maintain the trade. Because Egypt provides the food and some gold. The Hittites provide the tin that's essential to create copper. Everybody has a stake in creating, like, in, in, sorry, essential to creating bronze and copper was mined in the, a bunch of places, but especially in Cyprus, where both sides had to have some stake in. So it gives you an idea of like the sort of like the system that existed and how advanced these people were and how the cities were massive and the populations were massive and the organization was more than anything that had existed before. And the world of civilization, instead of just existing in Mesopotamia, had expanded to include Egypt, Anatolia, Greece even, and into Iran. Okay. And so th this kind of shows us... This, this is kind of where the transition of Western Civ comes from. No? Exactly. And yeah. after this point, we kind of stop talking about the Middle East. And then we focus more on, on Central Europe, Europe, exactly. and the Americas. But the important part to remember here is this all comes crashing down in a way that is much more significant than even the fall of the Western Roman Empire, as you say. Because this was very noticeable on a village-to-village -village level, on a city-to-city -city level. The population declined dramatically, and the cities, almost all the cities, were sacked. Well, what happened? So, um, so I'm going to give you the list of factors, because actually this is still a contentious issue that we have arguments about all the time, and historians have argue, uh, arguments about all the time. Okay. Uh, um, all of the civilizations were weakened. If one had been weakened, another could have like invaded and taken over, but all of them were weakened. And this is probably because of climatic problems. There's a theory that there's a volcanic okay. eruption yeah. in another part of the world, or in Etna maybe, that caused the harvest for a couple years to be very weak. And there's a theory that a major earthquake in the southern Aegean Sea cause massive destruction. Where, where is that? Oh, the Aegean Sea is like the Greek islands. Okay, okay. And so something happened there which caused people to people's homes to be destroyed and forcing them to move and to try to move out of their territory into other people's territory, which causes more, more you know, disruptions. Yeah. Um, the entire Levant came crashing down. All of the people's... Uh, all the cities saw it damages, especially Ugarit. There's like an account from Ugarit where once, like it's a clay tablet where one ruler is trying to send it to another ruler in order to get his soldiers back or to get aid from his ally. But the, the account was never sent. It was found in a pile of burning rubble. So that tells you how dramatic. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, yeah. And given given the fact that it's it's all these villages and cities crumbling down at the same time, 
I guess you can only attribute that to, most likely to climate factors, right? I mean, and not just climate. The climate factors, the volcanic eruptions, the earthquakes, the famines that are caused by it. This, this probably th- caused a lot of conflict between the peoples. Exactly, civil unrest, uh, okay. uprisings against your rulers. After yeah, the, your rulers are your rulers because they can provide for you. That's the system that exists. Yeah, this is a very stratified society. If your freaking world is falling apart. Who do you blame? You blame the rulers for their incompetence. Exactly. Or so, supposedly their competence. And when you're that weak, you're pretty easy to invade. And crucially, some of these invaders came with iron weapons, which could, anyone could produce. Because now the technology exists that anyone could produce iron without having uh, contact with this rare copper resource. You could actually produce iron anywhere. Okay. Yeah. So the invaders would have been just as well armed as these fancy charioteers. <laughs> so everything came crashing down from I think it was 1200 BCE to 1150 BCE and, and I think that kind of ties back to what you were saying about the theory of Ibn Khaldun where um, more cohesive groups right would come uh, they, they would come in and exp- and take over the, the, the less cohesive settled societies I mean mm-hmm. is this kind of something that happened at the, uh, because of that um, I guess you could say, and I'm actually going to get into that because it happens in it with a specific group. Okay. And it's going to be very familiar to you. Um, so, anyways, after this period of chaos for like 200 years, yeah. where we have very little evidence of what happened and there was significant depopulation, there's a, a kind of a shuffle that happens. And this precedes a period we call the biblical period. During this, uh, the biblical period being, you know, the kingdom of Israel, blah, 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 and what is attested to it in the Bible. Yeah. So when people think of ancient history, they think of like, oh, if they're Christian, they think of biblical history. This is new to this point. All of the stuff we've been discussing is already the ancient world for them. And this collapse of civilization is ancient world for them. Okay. So w- during this biblical period, there's a people who become very um, w- widespread in the Middle East. Yeah. And they are known as the Aramaeans. Now, the Aramean people are Semitic-speaking people who... Um, they're Semitic-speaking people who inhabited originally just the center of Syria. And they were people who did something called transhumance. Well, transhumance is a type of nomadic pastoral existence where you would go between two points uh, where you graze your animals every year. Okay. So you'd shift... Okay, depending on the season, you go from point A to point B, depending on what's so it's a kind of nomadic exactly, and it's a different climatic area. Yeah, and that's still how a lot of Bedouin live, but these aren't Arabs; they're a northern people, and they are Semitic speaking as well. From central Syria. From central Syria. Okay. And over time, during this period of collapse, they would come to occupy all of northern Syria. Most of what is Syria as, as a whole, including Damascus, Aleppo, all of these kingdoms, would be occupied by the Aramaeans, who would bring in their population, their culture, and their language, crucially. So, the other people of the Levant were the Canaanites. Yeah. And these Canaanites is a wider group of people who eventually broke off into the Hebrews and the Phoenicians, and the other less well-known groups like the Edomites and the the Ebalites and all the rest of them. the uh, Some of the uh, people who invaded 
Egypt, which became known as the Sea People's Event during the collapse, they would have settled in what is now the Gaza Strip and east uh, and the uh, coast of Israel. Okay. They were the Philistines who gave their name to Palestine. Yeah. So this sets up this world that exists. But the middle of the Middle East, so to speak, <laughs> was occupied by these Aramean-speaking people. And eventually, they were the ones who, whose language spread across to everybody. Because they were in the middle of every, everything. They were easy to learn for almost everyone because they were um, somewhat easier language to learn. And Semitic, had, just like everybody exactly. else. And they didn't have a great empire, but they had a bunch of kingdoms. So anyone who wanted to rule over these kingdoms had to have learned the language. So over time, everyone started to learn the languages. And it became the common language of the area where everyone spoke it as their mother tongue, eventually. By the time of Jesus, he spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. It sounds, uh, you know, you can kind of draw parallels between these people and the Arabs a little bit. Both of them are nomadic peoples. Both of them kind of rule in their own little areas. Both of them just <clears throat> stepped into the scene. Mm -hmm. And then everybody just began to, to adopt their language. You know, like it, there, there's, there's kind of a little, uh, yeah, there's little parallels actually between the two groups. Even though the Arabs come way, 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 way after these people. Exactly. And the Arameans would later have a huge influence on the Arabic alphabet, the culture, the language, all of it. Because what the Arabs replaced in the northern Middle East, or the northern parts north of them, was Aramaic-speaking okay. peoples. I mean, if, if, if you want to go back to, to what we were talking about on the previous episode, if the legends are true... These could be the Arabized Arabs, maybe? No, this is not the legends. Aramaeans? This is, these no, are no, the... I'm talking about the legends from the Adnan Qahtan stories. Oh, no, even then that wouldn't necessarily be true, because the Arameans never moved south. Oh, they never did, okay. No, no, no. But they did move into the settled area areas and become the settled people, or they, at least they mixed with the settled yeah. people to become like the culture, the dominant culture. And what's interesting is they didn't do it by succeeding, they did it by... Well, I'll tell you what. There's a specific Akkadian, uh, sorry, a Syrian king uh, named Tiglath Pileser the Third. Sorry, pronunciation <laughs> is of ancient Assyrian is not my thing. Okay. He made Aramaic one of the two official languages of the empire, and over time, it became the official language of the empire. So even though the Assyrians spoke Akkadian, yeah, that was just for them. The common people would speak Aramaic, and all the movement of people that happened because of the Assyrian conquests happened because... Of the Aramaic. No, no. Be, uh, uh, happened uh, to move Aramaic-speaking pe Aramaic peoples around. Yeah. And they settled in all these places and became the dominant language. Okay. Yeah. So that brings us to the Assyrians. And I know this is a long episode, but we're going to have to go through this. This is one of the most interesting parts of the ancient world, I think, is the Assyrians. Because they are characters, sir. They are characters. Please so, explain. Okay. Here's the best way I can explain this. So, if we're talking about Akkadian culture, which is Mesopotamian culture. Yeah. Um, think of Babylonia, or the south of Iraq, as Athens. Or Babylon as Athens. This cultural... Uh, artistic place, this great culture, this great wealth... All of that, think of the Assyrians as Sparta. So this war-centered, 
power exactly. Okay, yeah. Like where, 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 where as soon as you're born, you're a warrior or something. Where, where one worships Athens, the other worships the goddess Athens, the other worships the god Mars. Oh, sorry. Uh, what's his name in Greek? I can't remember. But regardless, Ares. Okay. Ares. Um, this is a people who have every bit the sophistication of the Babylonians and believe themselves to be the inheritors of the Babylonian legacy and the Akkadian le legacy and the Sumerian legacy. They see themselves as the defenders and the promulgators of that legacy. But they are a fundamentally differently organized people. They are centralized. They have roads, massive, well-fed cities on the Tigris River. These are massive cities of hundreds of thousands of people, a stupefying amount of urbanization. They have massive uh, gardens in their palaces, these legendary hanging gardens, these zoos. They had, like, lions in their pens and stuff. Fascinating stuff. And it would have been amazing to go Sounds visit. Sounds really cool, man. It is very cool. But at the same time, part of their decoration and their aesthetic was to show the horrifying images of their conquests in their like palaces these this is their homes and they're seeing images of people's heads rolling off shoulders and stuff this is very different from other people in the area where other people did do violence like it but they didn't advertise like this because it kind of kind of makes everybody else look a bit docile it does comparatively and they have a big emphasis on different gods. The god Ashur, the sun god, this god yeah. of war. Ashur is the also the name of For one the, of their first capital. Yeah. And it's Assyria. Ashuria, Assyria. Uh, in any case, they succeeded over time, especially in the 9th century, they started conquering everything. And they just kept conquering, like Rome. Just one king after another added one kingdom after another to his empire. And this, the reason why they were able to do this is because of their cohesion and their professionalism. They had a standing army, every bit the equal of the Roman army, in its ability to arm and armor their, all their soldiers with iron weapons, which a lot of militaries can't do because it's extremely expensive to arm everyone with iron weapons, and especially, um, especially so, so armor. They, so they must have had pretty good access to resources then. Exactly. They had great control of the resources available to them. And this was before Rome. Exactly. This okay, is yeah. uh, just 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 to give a timeline. When was this exactly? About when Rome was founded as a village. Okay, yeah. Exactly. So this is ancient. This is ancient, but it's new. It's after the co collapse and it's after the biblical period. Yeah. And it gets into the biblical ends the biblical period actually. Um, their armies have siege engineers who can break down anything. They start building battering rams that are two stories tall and that can break through these mud brick like walls that had like completely stopped armies before them. Um, they used combined arms in the military sense where they used horsemen, chariots, spearmen, archers, and slingers, and heavy in infantry. Yeah. Um, and the reason why they were so good at conquest is because they built a reputation. And that reputation was for brutality. So so they must have scared the people before even coming in. Exactly. As soon as they Better hear surrender. The, exactly. As soon as they hear of the Assyrians, no, nah, they're not defending that anymore. They were famous for flaying their enemies. And, uh, okay, flaying. Uh, just a PG-13 warning. This is the thing you saw in Game of Thrones, actually, if anybody saw this. This is when you skin your enemies alive. So you tell me that these people were doing 
Oh. Yeah, and they put it on the walls of their of their palaces. Aye, aye, aye. They put, probably put the the skins on the walls as well, but like they carved it into the walls <laughs> what they had done, and they put head you know heads on heads. Uh, yeah, that's, severed heads as like pyramids of severed yeah, heads. Like heads in, on spikes. Man, that's like going into one of those lodgers' cabins and you see a head of a moose or a deer right on the With, wall. But a person, you know. But this is a person instead. And another thing they would do is mass um, sexual assaults of men and women. Really? Of their enemies, anyone who resists. Um, they also did uh, desecration of the statues and the physical embodiments of the gods. So the back then, gods were like like the sacred cow, for example, in Christian understanding. These are physical things. Okay. These are physical places, and, so, and they desecrated them by like removing them and putting them into like into the, and they used to capture the the gods and bring them to us, uh, the capital to destroy them and stuff like that. It's yeah. to break the will of the people. Kind of, kind of like a symbolic takeover that we're taking over every aspect of your life here. Exactly, and that leads really well to this last point. They moved people around, especially the Arameans at first. They moved them around because breaking ties with your local people and moving them into an unfamiliar place is the best way to make them dependent on you. And True. so they moved all these people around to fit their imperial goals. And this is something that the Romans did. It's something the Inca did. Like, a lot of empires do this. I mean, they're not bad tacticians. Exactly. And it worked. For 200 years, for 300 years, they were the power. And by the end of their empire, they ruled the entire Middle East. They controlled all the way up until into Turkey. They destroyed the Armenian kingdom that had just emerged. They had Parts just, of Egypt too? They controlled all of Egypt. Okay. okay. They conquered all of Egypt. Northern, uh, northern what is now Saudi Arabia was conquered. This is desert territory, and they still conquered it. They conquered everything. Really? Northern Saudi Arabia? So we're talking about uh, the Nejd region. They went into Iran, and they destroyed the Elamite civilization, which is considered the ancestor of the Iranian civilization. They okay. destroyed it. And eventually that place had to be replaced, was replaced in population <laughs> by the Iranian people, actually. Wow, man. All That's right. how, and their reputation still, to this day, is as the evil empire. That's to give you guys an idea of who they are. I mean, they sowed it. Exactly. They consider themselves to be the evil empire. And they were, they sold it through their propaganda, the murals in their palaces, I was kept saying, the temples and the monoliths, all of these things that they built across the empire were to advertise their power and their brutality. The tropes include uh, not just the brutality, but their mastery over the natural world. They love to show themselves like fighting lions and stuff. They're kings okay. fighting lions. Power comes from the gods, especially Ashur, the sun god. And the big trope is this embrace of brutality and cruelty, as I said. Um, not just power or submission. We will always win is their message. And so you better give up. That sounds intense, man. It is intense, but once you lose a couple battles, the aura starts to fade. Yeah, you don't look, you don't look so frightening anymore. Exactly. So that's eventually how they like collapse is they lost a couple battles. They fought like one civil war and then everybody tried to destroy them. And an alliance of Babylonians, remi reminder, this is their sister culture, the Babylonians. Yeah. And the Medeans, an Iranian-speaking people who would eventually become the Kurds, we think. Okay. Uh, allied themselves and raced to go destroy the sacred cities 
of the Assyrian Empire. You know, this sounds kind of like the uh, the Allies versus the Nazis a little bit. It kind of probably guys, felt like that. Where these guys were probably, you know, the Nazis, and everybody else was the Allies. And they're and, like, you know, we're tired of your crap, man. Exactly. And by the way, that observation is really funny because... Um, and bear in mind, I know my co-host hasn't seen this. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, his series on the Persian Empire, which eventually would take over this whole territory, like only a hundred years after the collapse. Yeah. They, um, he describes it exactly the same way you just did. Really, as in the evil empire of the Nazis being taken over by the Allies, man. and the, the entire world being carved up between four empires afterwards. But what's interesting about this whole story of the Assyrians is through them is how we get the first account of the Arabs ever in history. And this was at the mm, early beginnings of their empire and the early part of their conquest. They hadn't yet conquered the world. They were just the strongest power yeah. at this point. And this is about... Uh... This was 853 BCE. Okay, so 800. Okay, so that's about 2,800 years ago. And to answer the thing that we like started off like an hour and a half ago talking about... Yeah. The first named Arab in recorded history is a is a king called Jindabu or Gindabu, not sure. It's probably Jindabu. Jindabu. And he was the first king named in the Arabs and he shows up in this amazing part of the history. It's one of the great battles of the rise of the Assyrian Empire. The probably greatest battle that they had up until that point, up until the point of their great city in Nineveh being destroyed. Yeah. Side tangent. I actually went to London yeah. uh, to go see the uh, British Museum at one point. And you actually see these murals that they took off the walls in Nineveh. This, the, the, uh, the great city of the Assyrians is the Nineveh. From, from, from that time. From that time. And you see these like conquering like armies on these walls. Like, the walls depict these conquering armies, but the walls are scorched with fire. Of their own destruction. Yo, these people are just too intense, man. No, it's great history, honestly. No, for, for sure, yeah. yeah. But like it, no, but like, they were bragging about their conquests, but the wall is now scorched with other <laughs> those people coming back to conquer them. Karma, man. You gotta, that, is, that is karma. That, that's what it is. It's really karma. It is. But while they were conquering, they were... Uh, so, I'm going to explain this, uh, this little thing uh, to begin with. So... They found these monoliths, the Koruk monolith, which are essentially uh, accounts of the conquests of two Assyrian kings, Ashurbanipal II and Shalmaneser III. Now, Shalmaneser III had just been crowned, where he goes on his massive, like, conquering rampage to go add territory to the empire, and it's a an account of. And the end of the, of the monolith describes an account of a massive battle that was had. So essentially what he had done was he had marched west from Assyria. He had destroyed the kingdom. Of, uh, he had cowed the kingdom of Aleppo. He had destroyed the lands of Hama and sacked and had just finished sacking this town called Karkar. And his forces marched south along the banks of the Orontes River, the most fertile river in Syria. Okay. And he was camped. There he met... An alliance of 12 kings. Now, this sounds like some Lord of the Rings crap. It does. It really does. Cause sounds these, very dramatic. The 12 kings united against him, led by the king of Damascus, an Aramean king named uh, 
Bar Hadad in the language of the, uh, the, the Arameans, which, which already sounds a little bit Arabic, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Exactly. So like, it's a related language, of course. But he brought a great army. He allied with himself with a number of kings, most notable among them, and the ones who brought the most men were Irhuleni of Hamath, King Irhuleni of Hamath, who commanded 700 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 10,000 soldiers. King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, came with his own great army of 2,000 chariots and 10,000 soldiers. And that's, then, a, that's a whole unit right there. Right? It is a whole unit. And Barhadad himself commanded 1,200 chariots, 1,200 horsemen, and 20,000 soldiers. Now, this is the account of the Assyrian monoliths, so they might be inflating numbers. But yeah. he, he lists all of these kings who come up against him. And in that list, we find... At least the Egyptians were giving moral support, like with a hundred men. But each of these kings <laughs> sent like little amounts. And this is a king. These include Canaanites, Hebrews, Phoenicians, Hittites, even because the Hittites had a couple of like surviving kingdoms in northern Syria who joined this fight. Yeah, it was it and was basically a coalition. It was a coalition of every culture in Greater Syria and the Levant at the time. And crucially, one of the most interesting additions was. Jindabu, the king of the Arabs, who brought a thousand camel warriors to the battle. Thousand camel cavalry. Cavalry, exactly. Okay. Which is a decent addition because cavalry, sorry, camels scare the crap out of horses. Really? Yes. <laughs> Especially horses that aren't used to it. <laughs> I mean, they do look a bit funny, I'm not going to lie. They sound funny, they smell funny, and they really scare the living bejesus out of horses. So it would have been a really great addition to this. But... Regardless of that, um, this battle that is described was essentially 35,000 Assyrians versus 60,000 or more allied troops. So it's an account of 100,000 men clashing in this great battle. And, in, they, and this would be in Karkar, which is in central Syria? It's actually like about an hour away from Idlib today. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. It's Idlib to the, to the south of Idlib. To the south of Idlib, exactly. Okay, so this is about central Syria. It's central northern Syria. Yeah. And this is where he met them. And what's great is, and to give you guys a flavor of what the Assyrians are like, I'm going to try, hopefully, to give you what is the account from this monolith. <clears throat> Quote, Karkar, his royal city I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire. And then he goes on to list all of the kings who, who stood against him. These twelve kings he brought to his support, to offer battle and fight. They came against me, trusting in the exalted might which Ashur, the Lord, had given me, in mighty weapons which Nergal, who goes before me, had presented to me. I battled with them. From Karkar, as far as the city of Gilzau, I routed them. Fourteen thousand of their warriors I slew with the sword, like Ahad, Adad, I rained destruction upon them. I scattered their corpses far and wide and covered the face of the desolate plain with their wide-spreading armies. With my weapons, I made their blood flow down the valleys of the land. These plains were too small to let their bodies fall. They wa the wide countryside was used up in burying them. With their bodies, I spanned Arantu, as with a bridge. In that battle, I took from them their chariots, their cavalry, their horses, 
broken to the yoke. End wow. quote. <laughs> so this it is, is dramatic. How, man. It's dramatic, and this is how Assyrians love to tell themselves. And this is the first account of the Arabs. And finally, in this podcast, we can get to the Arabs in the next few episodes. I mean, this is just the whole build-up to them. I know. And the first time they uh, they popped up, right, in the, in the Middle East. Exactly. And the we might discuss exactly what kind of Arabs these people are, because they are essentially the ancestors of the Nabataeans, who become very important later. Think like like Roman times. Yeah. Uh, but they're described, uh, at least to our knowledge, as the Qadarite or Qadari Arabs. Yeah. And it's. It's going to be an interesting story, especially given like how they're introduced to and us. And they're and they're usually centered around northern Arabia, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly, right? these are so the northern Arabs around the area of Jordan. Yeah. They were recruited to come and help the the king of Damascus, who must have had an alliance with them, and asked for some help. Uh, and uh, as much as the Assyrians are trying to like, uh, Ashalmaneser is trying to show himself to be this great victory. He didn't actually get to conquer much of Syria. He had to return home, so that even though this his account says that he won, yeah, but he might have done more damage, but he might have been forced to have to return back home. This might have been an effective halt or pause to the Assyrian conquest. I mean, he probably didn't accomplish what he was setting out for then. Exactly. So, one hell of a, uh, a story to tell, and I were it's it a, is, yeah. movie worthy, I'd say. It is. I mean, they should probably try to do a series just on the Assyrians. You know. Exactly. But regardless, um, I think that's a good place to end off this episode. Yeah, and um, you know we're gonna we, we've interestingly enough we found a, a nice little Sumerian song. Exactly. A nice Sumerian tune that we're gonna add at the end of the episode. Yeah. Uh, it's something that Houston found. Yeah, it's the um, it's some sort of uh, so we actually do have the music recording not not the recordings but we have the written sheet music of the ancient Sumerians that was preserved through the generations, through this cultural transmission down all the way to the Babylonians and the Assyrians of a Sumerian song and the tunes which accompany it. And some professor and music enthusiast actually recreated the instruments, the, the song and the tunes. And this is what we have to present to you tonight for, um, for the end of the episode song. So if you guys are wondering what this ancient dead language, the Sumerian language sounds like, this song is about as close as you can get, man. That's awesome. And I think it's a really great way to end off. So please enjoy. Have a good day, guys. See you later. Thank you.
Ki anta badasura 